In May of 2016, I was diagnosed with breast cancer. Being someone who does, and I'm using air quotes, most things right when it comes to keeping cancer away, that really didn't seem to matter. It was one of the most difficult challenges I'd ever faced, but it was also one of the greatest learning opportunities of my life. It helped me discover what was really important to me, forced me to focus on myself and my own care, and it helped me build my resilience. We all face challenges in life. Sometimes it's the big things like cancer, but other times it's just the day-to-day speed bumps that seem to pop up out of nowhere. So how can we use these challenges to help us grow as people, to be more resilient? That's what we're talking about today. This is the Work Well podcast series. Hi, I'm Jen Fisher, well-being leader for Deloitte, and it's great to be here with you today to talk about all things well-being. 99.99% of any living species that's ever been alive is actually extinct today. So we're very resilient that we survived, right? We're like the 0.01%. And that's because our body knows what to do. If you get a cold, you actually will bounce back stronger. If you break a bone, it will come back stronger. Our body knows how to do this thing. And the kind of resilience that makes many people face is not actually the the major life traumas it's actually now these day-to-day stresses that we actually need to learn resilience skills for I'm here with Amelia Jivatoskaya she's a widely sought after speaker educator facilitator and coach on positive psychology and the science of flourishing So I was born in Ukraine, Kiev, Ukraine. At the time, it was all USSR or Soviet communist Russia at the time. And I was born about 90 miles from Chernobyl. And both my brother and I were getting headaches and other symptoms that kind of indicated that perhaps we were really being affected by this. So we moved to this country, my parents pursuing the American dream. I was given this opportunity to to be in this beautiful country. And when I was 14 and he was 24, um, my brother was swimming at night with his fiance and a few friends, um, kind of partying young adults on a hot summer night in Long Beach, Long Island. And my brother's fiance started drowning and he ran in to try to rescue her and she survived, but he passed away. And that was my first major life trauma that I'd ever faced. And um, one, it got me needing to be resilient and just needing to step up and do what I could to support my parents and support our family during this crisis. But it also got me thinking about and connected to this idea that there's so much about the mind and body that we don't know that we can benefit from learning about because my brother passed away and my mom got diagnosed with ovarian cancer shortly after and my dad became a diabetic shortly after and even though I was a teenager I remember going there's got to be some sort of connection here between this trauma that they're facing and what they're experiencing in their body something that the doctors that we went to never really addressed so nobody really talked to my very you know strong Russian father (laughs) who never talks about his emotions and like the stress that he's feeling and what's happening to his cholesterol levels his diabetes and to his blood pressure. And my mother getting ovarian cancer, many people pass away within just six months of that happening. And she fought for 10 years. And I kept saying, hey guys, she's got cancer in her reproductive system. She's lost a child. Nobody's talking to her about the wounding, the loss, the pain that went into that. And and I completely respect my parents' decisions to not seek out psychological support 
It's just not culturally what they were exposed to. But for me, it got me passionate about understanding, like, what is this mind-body connection? And also got me really interested in understanding, how do we actually take care of ourselves? Because my parents didn't have those skills, and I found myself researching nutrition and things that my mom could eat as a cancer patient and ways that she could take care of her body and how can I get my dad's blood sugar down naturally and things that had to do with movement and nutrition that we weren't taught. And so it got me really passionate about self-care, understanding how do we prevent these things from happening, recognizing that I didn't have those tools, my parents didn't have those tools, seeking out those tools for helping people keep good physical, mental health. And then also around this concept of resilience, because people used to tell me all the time when I was growing up, things like, wow, Amelia, you're so amazing. Everything your family has been through, you know, I, I don't know how you do it. I, if I were in your position, I wouldn't be able to handle that. And if anybody here has gone through any major life trauma, you kind of want to like be like, don't say that to me. Because what we know to be true is that you just you do just handle it, right? right. You just you right. do what needs to be done. You never know how strong you are until you have to be. <laughs> exactly, exactly. But it got me interested in this concept of resilience, in particular thinking about what is what does that actually mean? And even as a kid, those words would play out in my mind and I literally would think to myself, like, is it just am I really special? Like, do I have some superpower? Because I just do what I need to do get to get by. But that's what brought me to studying resilience and actually learning that it's a skill set and it's a mindset and yeah. that we can actually teach people how to be resilient. It's not just something you have or you don't. Yeah, and, and your story is so powerful. I mean, it resonates for me in my own personal journey with breast cancer because there, you know, there's really no quote-unquote medical reason for why I got breast cancer. There's no history in my family Um, For the most part, I was doing most of the things that they say to do to keep cancer away, but what I wasn't doing was managing my stress. And so I think that that has a huge impact and had a huge impact on why I developed breast cancer, especially at a young age. Now, nobody can tell me that definitively, but that's what I believe. So, you you know, you, you kind of went right to the word resilience, and I feel like it's something that at least in my world, but I think generally now we're hearing a lot more about. And so can you tell me what's your definition of resilience? Yeah, so there's so many different metaphors that we use to describe and define resilience. A very simple one is the ability to bounce back from life setbacks or from challenges and adversities. And I actually love some of the imagery that goes with it. So we refer to a rubber band as being resilient, which is can it take its shape after it's been pushed and pulled on. And so how quickly can we get back into persevering despite setbacks? And the fascinating thing about resilience is that we as human beings are actually incredibly resilient. We're wired with a natural resiliency that our body knows exactly what to do. In fact, we're the human race is the 99.9% of the exception. So if you look at over the course of evolutionary history, 99.99% of any living species that's ever been alive is actually extinct today. So we're very resilient that we survived, right? We're like the 0.01%. And that's because 
our body knows what to do. If we, if you get a cold, you actually will bounce back stronger. If you break a bone, when your bone heals, it will come back stronger. Our body knows how to do this thing with actually added support. And the kind of resilience that many people face is not actually the the major life traumas. It's actually now these day-to-day stresses that we actually need to learn resilience skills for. So some of the things that I focus on in the field of positive psychology is looking at how do we actually teach resilience as a skill set, knowing that if it's a major trauma, most people kind of have a default setting that that just kicks into gear, whether it be September 11th here in the US, whether it be someone dies and you need to step up and, and take care of what needs to be done during those emergency type of situations, we have a default setting that people kick into. But with things like your emails getting over flooded, going in to have a vulnerable conversation with a person that you you don't have the skills to communicate with. All of those type of stressors are the types of skills that most of us aren't actually trained in, but we can actually deepen that connection. I can relate to that a lot. After I got over, you know, the fear of it all, I kind of went right into, you know, fight mode and, you know, let's get it done. I just have to take, you know, have to take care of this. And it was just in that, in that mode. But now I find myself, you know, getting frustrated by, things that are so much less than that, like my phone breaking or that they got my coffee order wrong, um, you know, things like that. And so what is it that's kind of getting in the way of us not being resilient when it comes to those day-to-day things? Part of it is that we can break down what stresses us into different factors. So there's the mental piece, which is the types of thoughts that go through your mind. So the thing that will impact one person getting the coffee order wrong and another person having coffee order wrong as well, but one person is angry and the other person just sort of okay, often has to do with the thoughts going through their mind or what's the story that we're telling Mm -hmm. ourselves. Most people go their whole life not even realizing that they're constantly in dialogue with themselves throughout the day telling a story. And so what's going to impact the way that people see that differently is their mental state or the thoughts that are going through their mind. So we want to look at mind chatter as a strong component to stress. So as you are going through your experience, and it's so great to be here with you, live, vibrant, you. happy, healthy today, um, is the story you told yourself. You're like, this sucks, but I'm going to do what I need to do. And so that's the story that kicked your turbo yeah. gear, you know, your yeah. turbo turbo chargers into gear, and you just did what you needed to do. So thoughts and beliefs and stories that we tell ourselves will impact that. But then also emotions. So oftentimes, we're not trained as to how to, what do we actually do with emotions that we feel? feel. So if we are feeling angry, if we are feeling disappointed, if we are feeling sad or grief or scared or worried or slightly anxious, we as human beings have this propensity to be able to actually choose our emotional state. And it's this superpower that we're often not trained in how to use. Other animals actually experience emotions by default. My dog will growl at another dog. And while she might maybe get distracted with me calling her name or putting a putting a treat up, her natural response is, see another dog, she wants to growl. She's not going to choose, say, you know what? Mommy doesn't like it when I growl at other yeah. dogs. I should simmer that down. 
one of the things that makes us uniquely human is our propensity to actually control our emotions or to choose an emotional state. But that's like a superpower that none of us are really trained in doing. But if you are able to recognize not only your own emotions, but others, to me, that's an incredible performance enhancer in anything that you're doing in life, not just in in work. Would you agree with that? Yeah. So interesting. I just saw a great documentary, the Mr. Rogers documentary. If you haven't seen it, I highly recommend it. And there's so much research-based wisdom to what this person embodied and brought. And there's one piece in there that he talked about really wanting to teach children that all emotions are mentionable and manageable. And that is actually a very research-based approach. And what's happening now is we have this whole movement in both school systems within organizations around emotional intelligence, where we know that one of the things that most impacts a person's success is not their IQ, but actually their EQ, their emotional intelligence quotient. How aware are they of their own emotional needs and other people's emotional needs? And I think that people have made too big of a deal around emotional intelligence because I, you know, many people go, oh yeah, it's really important. Then I ask them to define it and people are like, I don't know what it is, but it's a very important thing. And it's really simple. It comes down to three ends. Can you notice, name, and navigate emotions? Can you notice how you feel? Can you put a name to what you feel? And then can you actually shift it or navigate it, turn it up or dial it down if you need and do the same thing within someone else? So when you can you notice that someone else is stressed out, name it as maybe anxious, and then can you help them navigate that state? And it's such a fascinating thing when we do look at this initial messaging that we give, which is, you know, we don't mention emotions, nor do we teach them how to manage it. But if you just look at the fact that all emotions are human. And they're not bad. They're not bad. They're just indicators. They're supposed to be chemical messengers that alert us to very specific things. If I'm sad, it's alerting me to the fact that I've lost something that's important to me. If I'm anxious, it's alerting me that something bad might happen. If I'm angry, it's alerting me that I think someone is going to harm me. Whether that anger becomes, you know, you should have gotten my coffee order correct, (laughs) or whether that anger is something that is is legitimately like this is unfair this is an an injustice that i need to stand up for it's teaching people how to navigate that emotional quality that enables them to be resilient so all emotions would you say you don't have to react to the way that i approach it is that we want to we are wired to have an emotional reaction And there's a actually beautiful Buddhist saying around the second arrow, where the first arrow is that knee-jerk reaction that you just shoot off at something. Yeah. We're evolutionarily wired as right. animals for that. Yeah, but the Buddhist principle yeah. is that the second arrow is our choice, right? And so it's the ability to choose your reaction, right, or responsibility to choose the response that you want is something that we can train ourselves to do. And what we also, we can learn to become less reactive or have a weaker firing chemically of the thing that would trigger us. And that's something we can actually train ourselves to do. We can train it through mindfulness practices Mm -hmm. where we're actually first tuning into what am I thinking? What am I feeling? What am I needing? What's happening in this present moment? We can train ourselves away from that. Something happens, I react. Something happens, I react. Um, And so whatever the thing that is firing at us may no longer impact us as strongly or there's a space that's created between right. it that we can really choose how do I want to show up in the world. Yeah, and I think that that's um, really important in, in the modern workplace, this concept of kind of the 
the pause, right? Because so much is coming at us at all times. That one second pause to say, hold on a second. Yeah. How am I going to respond to this? Instead yeah. of, you know, using your Buddhist metaphor of, you know, just shooting that arrow off. So, or multiple arrows. Yeah. And <laughs> just keep firing, right? <laughs> yeah, we're all guilty of, of that, right? Yeah. I certainly am. Well, I think it's so important for people to um, explore what is what does mindfulness actually mean yeah. and firstly separate out mindfulness from meditation, meditation right yeah. mindfulness is a state of being it's yeah. a way of being in the world and meditation is a practice that there. supports yeah. that and the, there are many reasons why people choose to meditate there are people who choose to meditate from a spiritual perspective it connects them to something bigger right. than themselves and there are other ways of going about that some people will use prayer or contemplation and other things that get them there then there's also forms of meditation that I think of as very basic brain training. So we have an emotional response within our brain that's usually coming from what we call our core brain, our limbic system. And then we have our rational human part of our brain, which is our neocortex. It's the part of us that says, okay, this isn't that big of a deal. Everything's okay. What happens is that when we practice meditation or anything where we are building our willpower, our self-regulation is we're giving more power to our human rational thinking brain and taking power away from our emotional brain. Um, so for example, let's say I'm at the gym and I'm, I have this little compulsion within me. It's like, oh, I wonder if I got an email. I should check my phone. <laughs> so every time I give in to that impulse, I'm giving more power to my emotional brain and taking power away from my prefrontal cortex, the part of my brain that's like the controller. So I'm not going to think of that moment as a meditation moment, but it's a mindfulness right. moment. It's me catching myself acting compulsively and saying, you know what, I don't need to check my phone right now. I can finish my workout and my email right. will wait. Same thing that's happening for people when they choose to use meditation as a process of training their brain. So you're sitting there and you're going to set a timer for, let's say, five minutes and you're just going to try to focus on your breath. And naturally, you know, Five seconds later, one second later, your mind wanders right. and you bring it back. And it's the training, the bringing oneself back that's actually giving ourselves the benefit of meditation so that we can be in a more mindful right. place. And I think that many people have misunderstood it, that they think that it's about getting to an empty an mind. Empty, yeah, yeah. And, and I that's can't actually, just sit quietly and think about nothing. Yeah. And yeah. then people <laughs> go like, oh, I can't, I've tried that meditation stuff. I don't do it right. Yeah. As opposed to recognizing that, that what it is, it's the training. It's right. the coming back. So. And none of us really do it right <laughs> yeah or so or so long as you keep coming back at it you're doing right, it right exactly because it's exactly, about it's yeah. about the training the willpower and the self-regulatory response to say this is where i want my brain to focus not here focus here and that's what gives us the ability then to translate it into the board meeting that's what enables us to translate it into your kids are triggering you and you just need to take a step back and we can train ourselves in those off moments so that we're more masterful in yeah. the heat of the moment. And and it's something from your perspective that does require constant training. I mean, you can get better at it, but it's yeah. something that you have to develop a practice and keep that practice going over time just like you would going to the gym to keep your body yeah. healthy and strong and flexible. Yeah, ideally people would see this as part of their self-care practice, yeah. that they're building a muscle preventatively so that they use it in the heat of the moment. Otherwise what happens is people are just trying these skills out in the heat of the moment, and which times they actually can still be effective, right? Then we can also talk about the use of our body to create a calm response that then translates into what we're thinking about. But oftentimes people are trying to do these things in the heat of the moment. So they go, oh, you know, I tried that deep breathing thing and it didn't work for me. 
well, you tried it for the first time <laughs> when you were feeling like you had heart palpitations right. and you were like in the cycle of panicking that you were going to stop breathing. You know, it can help, but why not work that muscle when you are calm, when you're already in a state? And it doesn't take much time to be able to start building that type of practice so that your body remembers, whether it be a calm place, a centered space, or you're building up that muscle of self-regulation that makes it a lot easier to do in the moment. So let's talk about time and how much time you recommend, because that is something that I often hear. Well, I don't have time, whether it's, you know, going to the gym or whatever it is in terms of self-care I feel like most of the people that I know and probably most people in general when it comes to self-care it's the first thing that we kind of do away with when life gets busy which in reality it should actually be the thing that kind of bubbles up and stays there and never goes away but I think human nature is to take care of everything else and everyone else that's on my list and on my plate and then if there's something left I'll give it to myself and so I mean is it as little as you know 60 seconds five minutes 15 minutes what does that look like yeah yeah I have some thoughts on the time piece but I also want to help people get a little bit of a permission to be human moment to understand that there's a reason for why when we get stressed out self-care goes out the window The things that we think about as traditional self-care of needing to exercise, needing to get our sleep, needing to, you know, put food into our body, actually taking the time to eat, those are things that for thousands of years were a default setting. So we're not wired to make exercise a priority. Exercise used to be the given. We're just overriding it. Yeah, we're (laughs) overriding it, right? So it's like if you actually had a chance to take, you know, take a break, we're actually wired to do that. We're not wired to go oh, you know, going to the gym for an hour, taking time throughout the day to move, like, let me make this a priority. It doesn't fire off those motivation centers in our brain the same way. Same thing with sleep. It used to be a given that the sun set, you went to bed, like there was nothing else to be done. So the fact that people actually have to set goals now around shutting down their technology earlier in the day so that they can get to sleep and actually literally make goals out of getting enough sleep, we're not wired to actually do that well. So if you're out there listening and you're wondering like, yeah, why does my self-care go out the window? It's like we're not evolutionarily wired to make these things a priority. So we actually have to hack our own system to make these type of spaces or these types of goals. They actually they need crutches. They need support. Like, for example, I have gym memberships to like three different sports clubs that are all part of the same one, like within within a half so mile no radius. Excuse. I have no excuse. Yeah. It, like I literally have to walk past it in order to get into my office, right? It's like, cause I have to hack my, I have to hack my physiology. But back to your question around timing. So my statement is some is better than none. More is better than some. And lots is better than more. So, like <laughs> so I'll say that again because it, it took me a little while to develop, but it's like, you know, some is better than none, more is better than some, and lots is better than more. And this is supported by research. So even the, um, American Dietetic Association you know, says that, hey, if a person's got a pretty crappy diet, they're going to get benefits just by adding some vegetables right. in. And if you're already having some vegetables, Something. get more. Yeah. And if you're already getting more, like get lots. Same thing with movement. So it's amazing to see that the people who will literally get benefit from like a 15-minute walk, yeah. if you're not doing anything at all, that 15 minutes actually gives you a significant boost yeah. to things like your immune system, things like getting your body filled with more oxygen so you're actually burning more toxins out of your body. So 
it's more important to ask people, what can they do that's consistent? So for me, meditation has been a love-hate relationship. In fact, I say that (laughs) the thing I do on the cushion, which is I sit down on the cushion, my mind wanders, I try to bring it back, is actually what I do with the cushion. I wander from the cushion, weeks will go back, and then I come back, right? So the most important thing is I can say after 15 years of trying to do this thing consistently, doing something every single day in that way is just not the way that my body is wired. But do I keep coming back? And what the research shows is that doing frequency is actually more important than actually duration of time. So let's say it's just coming back to it as like, okay, my one minute a day, can I set a timer for just one minute a day, but keep coming back to, I do it for one minute a day or five minutes. And there is the Buddhist saying that if you don't have 20 minutes for meditation, you actually need an hour, right? And that's like, (laughs) yeah, that's, if you can't find 20 minutes in the day, but, but that is, that is definitely as, as a busy entrepreneur, like that is my life sometimes. But what the research shows it's it's more important to actually keep coming back to it and frequency more than duration you are known to talk about the concept of vitality and I think that that's I mean we hear resiliency we hear that we hear that word that language a lot what got you into studying vitality what does it mean and how do you apply it yeah i i am so passionate about the concept of vitality getting it on the map getting people thinking about their own energetic state so vitality is defined as having energy available to oneself and i think of it as a state of high level wellness a state where you feel like not only are you not sick but you are very healthy. And there are many things that enable that vitality. And I've been passionate about, especially in the field of positive psychology, getting people to integrate the relationship to the body ever since I've been in this field. And we in the field of positive psychology have a model called PERMA. And PERMA stands for the five pathways that contribute to flourishing. And um, what that consists of is positivity, meaning having positive emotions, engagement, feeling deeply connected to the things you're doing, relationships, having high quality connections in your life, having meaning and purpose, that's the M, and then having achievement. And for the past, at this point, decade, I've been saying, well, what about the body? That you can't have a life of flourishing if you don't integrate the body. So we teach the PERMA V model where we actually have a V for vitality. And so when we look at enablers to our physical health and well-being, things like sleep, sleep is the foundation to vitality. People underestimate the profound impact that sleep has on our mental health, our physical health. And things like moving our body enable us to have more energy available to us. But that also then includes things like nutrition and absorption. So not just what do we put into our body, but how do we give our body the conditions that it actually absorbs the nutrients that it needs. So vitality is a state of high level wellness. It's a state of having energy available to you to do the things that you want to do. And it enables resilience because we know that firstly, there's a relationship between people who are physically active, for example, have higher immune systems. So if you want to talk about being resilient to whether it be bacteria that you come in contact with or or virus that you come in contact with, the more physically active we are, the higher our immune system is. So we're actually physically more resilient. When people have gotten their mental health taken care of from a sleep perspective, 
they're much less emotionally reactive, right? Everybody has been there where you're just like, you are so depleted because you haven't gotten a good night's sleep. And then you find yourself just more emotional, meaning things that are upsetting or extra upsetting, things that are triggering or extra triggering, or our impulse control goes down so drastically when we don't get enough sleep. Same thing with our food and nutrition. So the things that we put into our body strongly impact how compulsive we are. Having too much sugar in your body will make you crash really quickly. And we all know that mood dip that we feel. So many of us are coming in contact with the ways in which our body is impacting us. I'm also really passionate about things like ergonomics and how we actually hold our body in space and how do we actually keep our body aligned? Because there's so many things that people start to experience as aches and pains in our body that they just think are normal. And it's not normal for a body to be in pain. And there are things that we can actually do to learn how to take care of our body so that it is more aligned. And I'm passionate about this topic of of body care. I think it belongs in the school systems. Physical education back in the 20s and 30s used to actually include in classrooms teaching children about how their body works. Then we went through this crisis point where as people's fitness levels started to go down and we had wars that we needed to overcome, they actually found that the U.S., uh, that the children were growing up not physically fit enough for combat. So suddenly we started to have standardized exams for fitness that we needed to meet. And then we also had standardized sports that became like competitive and people had free time. So literally gym classes and PE classes became around exercise and sports and moved away from what it was originally intended, which is actually taking, teaching people, here is your body, this precious container and vessel that's the only vessel you get for this whole lifetime that doesn't come with a user's manual. Your phone comes with a user's manual, your TV, your everything that you get, you know, even like pens will come with a manual now. Like we don't get one. We don't get one, right? And we're not taught how to take care of our body. And even if you look at the field of medicine today, it's still missing vitality because a lot of medicine went from being treatment-based and then it went to preventative medicine, which is what we hear a lot about today, but that's still trying to prevent illness as opposed to actually devoting more and more research on high-level wellness. So what are the conditions that don't just prevent people from getting sick, but actually keep them feeling vibrant, aging well, having the resources within their body to do the things that they want to do throughout their lifetime. You've touched on it a little bit, but I want to dive in deeper um, to the concept of of mind-body connection because I think for most people there's, you know, okay, let me take care of the mind piece and let me take care of the body piece. And oftentimes we really think of them as two separate things but they're not and you know it's not like you can cut off your head and <laughs> and still live you yeah. know or or vice versa cut off your body and still and so yeah. um we don't often i think put those things together or think yeah. about them in that way so firstly we many people if they probably noticed how many times they've referenced the mind-body connection throughout the day, they would probably be shocked. That person's such a pain in the neck. Oh, I was worried sick. Oh, I'm heartbroken. We use these words all the time to actually describe this connection between our mind or our emotional state and what we experience within our body. We all live it. And within the field of science, it used to be mind and body medicine. Then we actually now called it 
mind hyphen body medicine. And now it's actually just one, one word. word. So yeah. just the word mind body. And when you were just referencing even chopping off your neck, so if we were to chop off our neck and you actually would still be separating body from body, right? It's brain, yeah. Yeah. right? The brain is an organ that is a part of our body, which actually gets us more connected to the, a more profound question, which is what is mind? And what we now know is that the mind is not just in the brain. The mind is actually all over our body. The mind is is outside of the body and it's the in-between and it has actually to do with our perception and our reception of information that we're getting from our skin on the outside. We're getting it from our digestive system, yeah. which is on the inside. So where is this perceptual organ? It's not in any one place. It's actually all over our body. And so when we think about the mind-body connection, we're thinking about mind as uh, a mental state, a state of cognition, a state of feeling. And it's very hard to separate that out from our body and our physical state. So we want to take care of both of them. And what's beautiful is as you take care of one, you, you often tend to heal the other. Right. So as I start to control my thinking, I might start to notice that my body will actually release some physical tension. Sometimes I can approach it through the body. So in fact, if you were to put a person into, let's say, one of those flotation tanks where they actually are floating and yeah. they don't have gravity holding them up, one of the things that people often experience in how calming those places are is it actually enables your muscles to relax and that you physically physiologically cannot have negative emotion without muscle tension in order to actually be stressed out you or, or to have negative thoughts you need an element of tension so our mind gets relaxed because our body is getting relaxed so whether you're using progressive muscle relaxation or you're getting a massage or you're utilizing your body those will impact the way that we think and the way that we feel. And so I believe in giving people tools for both. And I think that we can actually, I, I'm a little biased. Yeah. I actually think that the body tools can often get us to those psychological states way faster. So actually when I was doing my master's in positive psychology at the University of Pennsylvania, we would learn all these cognitive strategies for helping people shift their anxiety levels or shift their depression. And these were really great tools that we would learn these fancy cognitive behavioral talk back sentences to their mind. And I'd be like, well, that's great and all, but if you just give me like 10 minutes, I can use some yoga breathing exercises to right. get them like way less anxious pretty quickly. Cause that was my, that was my, my vitality argument. It was like, where's the body in all of this? And it's not either or, but the body is such a profound tool. If only we knew how to use it. Yeah. So, so what are some of those strategies? Cause I personally could use some tips, but I know that our listeners love to yeah. kind of hear some hacks and some tips. And so what are some of your top strategies that, yeah. that you share with people? Yeah. So firstly, the body needs sleep. The body needs yeah. sleep. And and when I say this, like I, I often think to myself, how much better would my brain function today if I learned to respect sleep as an adolescent? Because I was spent most of my life being like, look at this badge of armor of how little sleep I could get by on. And it wasn't until I learned the science of sleep that I actually learned to respect sleep. So we go through 90 minute sleep cycles over the course of, of, of a night, yeah. hopefully. 
And the first half of that sleep cycle is all about restoring the body. And then the other half of that sleep cycle is all about restoring the mind. So if, so if people actually looked at the lineup of, of action items that get accomplished while they're sleeping, you know, things like growth hormone, immune system cells, producing new tissue, and also organizing and storing memories out of short-term memory into long-term memory, you'd be like, wow, like my body's got a lot of work to do. I got to get to sleep so I could actually get this thing done. So that's one of the most simple ways that we can actually take control of our bodily state because we will feel healthier. Your immune system will be higher. You will have new cells rejuvenated. You have more to work with when you start with sleep. And when it comes to sleep, I know, because when I talk to people, they say, oh, well, yeah, I know I should get seven to nine hours, but I've gotten five hours for the past 10 years and I do just fine. Yeah. (laughs) So with the exception of very, very few people who actually physiologically actually can get by with less sleep, that's actually such a small part of the population. Most people are actually demonstrating this resilience principle that we were talking about, that the body can get by because we are adaptive creatures. We, We adapt, but part of it is just because they're used to that way of being doesn't necessarily mean that it's the optimal state. And what you're referring to is that our body's cleansing process that we get through sleep is so important that the it's not that the mind gets secondary, but basically what happens is over the course of that cycle, the more times we take that 90-minute cycle over the course of our, our night's sleep, we actually spend more and more time in REM each time. Right. So it's like the first time your body goes through cleansing, it's going to do the most important thing, like get the heart pumping, get the toxins out of our body, get the immune system up, do the physio- physical side of things. Things. And maybe we'll spend like 15 minutes in REM. Then the next time around, we get 20 minutes in REM, more and more. And this is one of the reasons why usually we only remember our dreams on like the last cycle. And the dream just seems that much longer. Is literally we're in that REM cycle, the place where we're restoring our mind more at the end. Another reason why, and that REM is so important that when people cut their sleep short, one of the things that actually happens is people will um, daydream or they will actually like have their they'll go into an immediate dreaming state even if they're just taking a short nap. And that's because their body hasn't been getting it's enough crazy. REM. And it's so important to get REM because that's where we store our our short-term memories, get converted into long-term memory. The body knows it's going to need it. It's going to get it somehow. So if people are getting by in like four hours sleep or like really cutting, it's super short. That thing, that REM is so important that they'll start kind of dreaming in the middle of like being awake and going like, whoa, they're like hallucinating, right? <laughs> because that's what happens when people are chronically yeah. sleeping deprived. So what happens is people think that they're doing fine, but I challenge them and go, if you really think you're doing fine, try it out, just try it out and actually see how you feel to have more, more energy available to the body. And then maybe after, if you test it out and you really got to let yourself test it like a few weeks to a month and, and see what would it be like to just actually let your body sleep without an alarm clock. Unfortunately, the only indicator that we have, it's very scientific, very technical to let you know you're getting enough sleep is you're not tired. Right. But if you feel like you find yourself sleepy, if you find yourself kind of crashing in the middle afternoon or after a meal, you kind of feel a little tired, your body's probably not getting enough. And so we can use the body from that one very simple vitality hack. We do it every night, just actually honor it and respect it, that it's not like extra, it's actually essential. 
then we can also utilize our body to shift our emotional state. And that can come from anything from actually taking some breaths, some deep breaths. Um, when I say deep, we actually mean more slow and low into the diaphragm. We actually release about 80% of the waste of our body through our breathing, mm -hmm. not through sweating, not through urination, not through defecation, actually through breath, because it is the body's ultimate cleansing process. So carbon is a waste product. It's a waste product that comes from metabolizing food. It's a waste product that comes from just burning up fuel, running upstairs, walking around. Our body is burning off the energy and it's releasing carbon. When we breathe in oxygen, we release carbon dioxide because this chemical combustion is actually happening right. to take the carbon out of our body. And so one of the things we could actually do is just spend a little bit more time being conscious of our breath, breathing a little bit fuller, getting a little bit more oxygen in and exhaling completely and really taking that time to learn how to use breath as a tool. It's a tool that we're all walking around with that we can just capitalize and leverage. So taking a few minutes just to breathe consciously, oftentimes when we just notice our breathing, we slow it down naturally and we can look at this need to inhale, this need to exhale completely as a very simple way to get ourselves feeling healthier and more vital. And we already have, again, there's things that we say all the time, like I'm going to go for a walk to clear my mind. Right. That's a mind-body connection piece. Literally, you actually are clearing your mind because as you're walking, as you're moving your body, your muscles will need the oxygen in order to fire. And because your muscles and your heart are getting oxygen, your brain's getting oxygen too. So literally, we are cleansing our mind and cleansing our body because we're actually getting more breath into our body. So grateful Amelia could be with us today to discuss all things resilience and vitality. Thank you to our producers and to you, our listeners. You can find the WorkWell podcast series on Deloitte.com, or you can visit various podcatchers using the keyword WorkWell, all one word, to hear more. If you have a topic you'd like to hear on the WorkWell podcast series, or maybe a story you'd like to share, reach out to me on LinkedIn. My profile is under the name Jennifer Fisher or on Twitter at JenFish23. We're always open to recommendations and feedback. And of course, if you like what you hear, please share, post, and like this podcast. And if you like the show, don't forget to subscribe so that you get all of our future episodes. Thanks and be well. Be well.